Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 21. This is the last section of chapter 9. And we will be looking tonight at the sixth trumpet. But to begin us off, I want us to consider a question. A question that I think this passage here, it, it addresses not, not directly, but it helps us give a better understanding of this question. And the question is this, is God's wrath against mankind justified? Is God's wrath against mankind justified? Or another way to, to phrase this question, is it fair that God judges us? Is it fair? This question is a struggle in our hearts. It's a struggle for unbelievers. It's a struggle for believers as well. A struggle of question of fairness. And every time we ask a question about fairness, when we judge something, whether or not it's fair, whether or not it's right or wrong, where we're coming from a place saying, hey, we're going to make a judgment about this. But every time you make a judgment, you're really trying to exercise some sort of authority over this question. Right? You're, 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 you're deciding between whether something is right or wrong. You're, you're, you're looking at a certain standard and you're comparing it to it. It, there's a question of authority to it. And for us to say that we can judge whether or not God's wrath, God's judgment against this world is just, puts us in a position to say, hey, we, do we have authority to make such a judgment against God? You see, it comes back down to a question of authority. And since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3, ever since Adam committed the first sin and brought all humanity with him, mankind has wrestled with God with who has the right to judge between right and wrong. We can talk about sin, and sin, if you want any kind, there's a lot of different ways you can define sin, but one way to think about sin is it's a battle for authority. And in our hearts, we seek self-autonomy, don't we? Meaning we seek self-individualism. We make, we believe our choices. We, we make our own choices. We don't need to answer to anyone else. We all struggle with it. I struggle with it. And this kind of question here is that kind of wrestle with our hearts. You see, to deny God's right to condemn the world is to question his authority. And this passage here is going to, it's going to, we're going to ask that question when we read this passage. Because in this passage that we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 9, starting from verse 13, we're going to see a genocide against the world. It's going to, we're going to read that a third of the world's population is going to be killed. How do we work through that? How do we understand that? How do we wrestle with that in our hearts and our minds? So then let's take a look at this passage. Here are the, the points that I'm going to be bringing up in this passage. I'm going to bring in three points. There are going to be three doctrines that I see interwoven to this passage that's going to help us answer this question. Is God's wrath against mankind justified? And the first doctrine we'll see here is God's judgment. Let's go ahead and read verses 13 to 19. Here, God's word says this. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's head. And the and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. We see here the sixth trumpet releases a, a, a dramatic judgment against this world. This here is God's judgment. And in this judgment, we see here a great army released by God to kill a third of mankind. As we've been seeing throughout the book of Revelation, the apostle John who wrote this book, He's given this vision, and in this vision, he both hears some things and sees something. And we, we take a look here first at what he hears. When the trumpet is blown, God, John heard a voice, and this voice says, release four angels who are bound at the great rivers of Euphrates. Now, Euphrates is indeed a prominent river. It's a river that is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Euphrates was mentioned in creation. In Genesis chapter 2, it talks about one river that flows through Eden and splits off into four separate rivers. And one of those four rivers was the Euphrates. Euphrates is an old river, and it's prominent throughout Israel's history. Euphrates was constantly referred to as the boundary, a boundary line of the great nation of Israel. And many times this boundary Euphrates was talked about in terms of on the other side of the river lies this lies the enemy. It lies this great army that wants to invade Israel and take over it. So, so Euphrates is almost like this, this barrier between that, that creates a safety net for Israel that protects them from their enemies that are across the river. And, and so in a sense here, we're, we see that this, this river is spoken about here. We see here four angels who are to be released. They're bound there. It's as if these four angels were being held there by God for this specific hour. And I mean, we imagine just the river when it dries up and suddenly comes an outpour. An outpour, an army that crosses over and invades into the land. And we see the number here. Again, John hears the number first, right? He hears the number. He makes that clear in verse 16. And that number is twice 10,000 times 10,000. I believe it's an actual number. It's not an estimate. Because God makes, because uh, John makes it clear. He said, I heard their number. 
twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's do math right. If I did my math right, that's 200 million people, 200 million troops coming against coming against mankind. To kind of put that in this perspective, China right now, who has the biggest army, has about they estimate around 2.8 million in their current army. That's the biggest army known right now in the current world. This army here, 200 million. It's a massive number. It's a massive number. Uh, and just, just think about what that may look like. I, I, I think about, I don't know if I like movie references. So I think about like Infinity War, right? And, and Thanos comes or Thanos sends his army over and they're battling at Wakanda and there's like this force field that blocks them, right? And you see them just climbing all over, just trying to get in. It's, it's almost like that when Euphrates acts like that barrier and on the other side, there's this army just waiting to come in. What is this army? Well, some scholars, many commentators think that this army refers to natural human army. It refers to perhaps some great nation and Euphrates was typically the eastern boundary of Israel. So it's, they refer to it as the Asian army, actually. And so it's, I mean, think about the population of China and India. I, I guess it's not too far-fetched to think that such a great army might come up from the east. But as we read here in scripture, we could perhaps interpret it that way. Others think that this army is not necessarily an army of people, it's an army of tanks. So that's why they're spitting out fire and sulfur and things like that. And John just didn't have any other way to describe tanks during that time, so he described it as horses with smoke and fire coming out of their mouths. I don't know. I, I think here, looking at this, the, I, I think that's a more straightforward answer. I, I believe this is an army of demons. Army of demons released by God, there and they've been waiting, waiting to come in to, to come in and kill a third of mankind. And this army of demon, they're just coming in, and we, we see the description of them. We, we see here that they're, they're, the heads of the horses are like lion's heads, and, and how their mouths come fire, smoke, and sulfur. And when we see here a picture of demonic horses, it's, again, just thinking about movie references, it's, it's like in the movie Elf, I know Happy Movie, <laughs> but like when they present the cavalry in, in the Great Park and they're describing the horses there, the, the rangers, the park rangers there, and they describe the horses as like these untamed animals, ruthless, and I, I just imagine that, but 10 times worse here, like God's describing to us, John is describing to us these animals, waiting to come in to cast death around the world. We think about this, we think about how scary this picture is. And we see glimpses of this picture even today. We read, if you read on the news, you know that the nation of Ukraine on the earth side of the border, the Russian army is gathering against them. They haven't invaded yet, but they're a threat. We see, we see glimpses of what this may feel like, look like. And this is, again, God here is, he's saying that 
There are four angels right now bound, so they're bounding, they're bounding this army, keeping them at bay. This army of demons, I believe, army of demons at bay, and it's until the right time, God will release them. This, this is a scary picture. The reality of this picture here is that God is indeed the final judge of all humanity. The final judge of all humanity. Now, now, why did John see fire, smoke, and sulfur? Fire, smoke, and sulfur. They, these images actually appear several times in the New Testament, but the only time these three words, fire, smoke, and sulfur, appear at the same time is during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 talks about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and how it's been destroyed by God. Now, I want you guys to, to kind of see this. We're, we're going to look at this a little bit now. We're going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah again later. So go ahead and just keep your finger at Genesis chapter 19. We'll turn, we're going to turn there now, but we'll, and then we'll go back to Revelation, but we will go back to this passage to wrap it up. But first, look with me at Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. It says here, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the, from the Lord out of heaven. We see here sulfur and fire. Then jump to verse 28. Abraham here got up and he said, this is what you see. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. We see here fire, smoke, sulfur coming upon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. What is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? We turn back with me to one chapter, to chapter 18, Genesis 18, verse uh, looking at looking at starting verse 22. Here, God speaks with Abraham and he tells Abraham, hey. I'm going to destroy this city, and Abraham intercedes. Abraham talks to God and says, hey, what happens if there's 50 people in the city? Will you spare this city for 50 people? And then God says, I will. And then God says, and Abraham answers back, well, what about 40? And the number decreases all the way until we see here in verse 32. Abraham asks, well, let the Lord... Let not the Lord be angry. Because Abraham has to ask him more questions. Oh, let the Lord, not, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 righteous, 10 are found there. And God answers, for the sake of 10, 10 righteous people, I would not destroy the city. And then the conversation ends. But here's what happened. Look with me in verse 19, verse 4. Here, Lot, uh, uh, who is related to Abraham, lives in the city of Sodom. That's four people in, but or that's these two people in, two men in. And these two men, as they're staying in the house, the city of Sodom rose up at night. They wanted to commit immorality with these two men. And here in Genesis chapter 19, verse 4, See, see what it says. Before they, these men, 
these two guests, deep before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and here it says, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They wanted to commit immorality, evil against these two men. And the text makes it clear. There wasn't even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There wasn't even 10. See, God here, God here is the final judge of all humanity, including this evil city. And he casts judgment upon them. God knows all things. God is judging all people. He knows your deeds. He knows your hearts. He knows your words, both spoken and unspoken. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God knows the words and deeds of each person. He knows all and sees all. God is the judge of all humanity. And God, unlike Unlike idols of this world, unlike these fake gods of the world, God is not some kind of genie. He's not some kind of inactive God that only responds to prayers and rituals and, and worship. He doesn't just simply respond to people bowing to him. God acts. He acts according to his own will for his glory. That doesn't mean he, God doesn't respond to your prayer. He does. But God also has his own will, and he is the judge of all the earth. See, God works to both bless the earth and judge the earth. And what this does is it reminds us that all of us have to answer to God one day. Every single one of us. This gives us the first answer to the question. God has every right to judge mankind because he has created us in his image. And when I say us, I mean all of humanity. He has created us in his image and stands above us as the judge of all creation. He stands above us. He is not man. God is not like man. We are made in his image. We want to think about this a little more clearly. God's judgment is it's a good thing for us. Because what it does is it actually provides a purpose for us in our lives. To know that we are going to be judged gives us purpose. Let me give you an example of this. Think about your schoolwork. If you have to take tests but they never get graded, how seriously will you take your test? How seriously will you study for it? You know a homework assignment is optional and you have all these other things that you have to do when you do the optional form assignment. Perhaps if you really need to, you really strive to do it, but if there's other things taking up your time, you'll probably focus on those first, right? Because they're not going to be graded. In, sense, in, in a sense, they're not going to be judged. And so it doesn't give you as much purpose. Knowing that God will judge all of us gives our life live for him, to please him. A few implications of this doctrine. One, this should bring terror for all those who have not repented their sins. It should bring them terror. We, we tell people you can't scare people to God, but there's a sense here that 
God says, hey, if you're in sin, you will be judged. Remember that. So there is a sense of people being scared to God. And yes, it requires more than that. But we do, in a sense, live in a fear of God, who he is. He is the final judge. But for those of us who do believe in Christ as our Lord and Savior, as the one who took our judgment upon the cross, this shows and brings us joy. It brings joy to all worshipers of God because God's judgment reveals his glory. It brings us joy. God, God also judges to bring our comfort. You turn back to Revelation. We'll go back there now. Revelation chapter 9. The, the beginning of the trumpet judgments. As I, I, I preached on this, I believe, I forgot when, at the beginning of beginning of January, in chapter 8, we see that the, we see here in chapter 8 that there is this altar, this altar where the angels came and that's where the seven trumpets were revealed. And this altar here is talked about again here in the sixth trumpet, right? In verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. This here is a reminder that this is an answer to prayer. Prayer of the saints, the altar consists of all the prayers of the saints, specifically those who have been persecuted and martyred for their faith. It's a prayer to them. And so they see here God's judgment brings comfort. Those who have been persecuted and martyred for their faith because God is answering to their pleas. God is, in a sense, avenging their deaths. It brings them comfort that there is justice to be found in God. So God's judgment here, God's judgment reminds us then, it reminds us that God is indeed the final judge. He judges all people, including us. He stands above us in this way, and that gives him every right to judge mankind. Let's look here at a second reason. The second doctrine we're going to look at here is man's depravity. Man's depravity, let's finish up this chapter. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Here it says, the rest of mankind, so those are these who are not been killed, the rest of mankind who have not who are not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. We see here in these two verses, the remaining unbelievers of the world still do not repent of their sins. They continue to worship their idols. They continue to worship their demons who we know are behind all idols. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says, I imply that the food offered to idols, when these pagans sacrifice to all idols, they offer to demons and not to God. And so demons are behind all idolatry. We see here that these people, these unbelievers who were not killed, they continued in their sins. They continue their sins, and in a sense, they live in chaos. They, they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual morality, of their thefts. They live in chaos. And this is 
This is not something new. This is the middle of the Great Tribulation. I mean, we, we, we foresee this. You don't have to be necessarily Christians to foresee something like this. Think about all the apocalyptic movies or books you guys read of dystopian, of a dystopian world. Some of them that maybe they're living in some technological high, I don't know, peaceful, but they're in a sense underneath all that, something's wrong with all this. Others portray a picture, and this is what kind of what we see here: a picture of immorality spread throughout the world. The world destroyed, everyone living for what is right before their own eyes. No one. The answer to no one, no authority. And so they, they live with no consequence. In a sense, you see a picture of this right here. They did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual morality, of their thefts. They lived to do whatever is right in their own eyes. What we see here is the true nature of the depraved heart. The true nature of the depraved heart is a heart that refuses to believe in God. A heart that refuses to believe in God. And this is not the first time we see this. We see this in John chapter 12, verse 37, where Jesus performed many signs before his people. And John chapter 12, verse 37 says, Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so we see here that no miracle convinced the brave heart to believe. We get a picture of this in, in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, we have a story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And in the story, both men died. Lazarus goes up to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. And the rich man, seeing, being in agony, looks to Lazarus and, and he realized all the wrongs he has done, but he couldn't. And so he couldn't stand it. So what he tells the angel there, I think it was Abraham with Lazarus, he tells him, hey, send Lazarus back. Send Lazarus back to earth. Warn my relatives of the agonies of hell. Warn them. And again, I think it's Abraham. Abraham answers. This rich man tells him, this is what he says, Luke chapter 16, verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, meaning if they do not listen to the law given to them right now, they do not believe in it, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If Lazarus were to go back, rise up from the dead, and speak to them, they will still not believe. We see here no warning to convince the brave heart to believe. Another example, we see here written, this is more of a theological example, Romans chapter 1. Paul writing this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what Paul here is saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we'll see more of Romans chapter 1 in a minute. But what Paul is saying here is that the wrath of God is coming against man. And he's what's happening is God, what God is doing is God is allowing man to live in their sins and the consequence of their sins. And still yet they do not believe. 
let me give you let me just give you a quick example of what this looks like well, we don't we think about sexual morality any kind of sexual morality could be sex before marriage could be adultery could be homosexuality and we think about what happened with aids back in the 80s and we see here that yes we have compassion for those who have aids and we should it's definitely hard if you have it and we should care for them but it is a consequence of their sin and it says this is the wrath of god allowing them to live in the consequence of their unrighteousness because what's the best way to avoid getting an std is to be a virgin until you're married that's really the foolproof way of not contracting an std and and yet how do they talk about stds stds and aids today they talk about them as victims victims and not victims of their own sins but victims of society and how people look down upon them for their morality again we should have compassion for them yes we should have compassion for all people but it is it is a wonder how God's wrath is revealed and now went against them, and yet they still don't believe. It says in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth. You see here in our passage that even though a third of mankind was killed, even though they see a third of their own people dying, they still did not repent. They did not repent because they have to pray hard. In essence, what we see here is man becomes what he worships. Becomes what he worships. Look what here we see in Revelation 19. Talks about these idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. And what are these attributes of these idols? They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot walk. And we're, we're, we're reading this, right? And we're like, well, duh, there are statues. Of course they can't see. Of course they can't hear. Of course we don't expect a statue to get up and walk. Uh, it'd be weird if we see a giant Buddha statue just getting up and walking down the street. <laughs> These idols can't do that. But there's something here that is, something here that God is telling us. He's telling us that man is becoming like what he worships. In Psalm chapter, not chapter, in Psalm 115, Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, this is what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not hear. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Get this verse eight. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You see, all of us as human beings, we are mimickers. We are worshipers. And we become what we worship. 
I mean, that's what it means to be the image of God. When you worship God, you become more like him. But in the same way, if you don't worship God, you worship these idols, you become more like them. What does that look like? Or do we have any other phrase in scripture that speaks to what happens to our hearts when we become more like them? We do. Scripture tells us that if we are not born again, our hearts are hardened against God. Hardened. Meaning we're becoming like gold, silver, wood, and stone. Hardened against God. Spiritually dead. Spiritually we cannot see, cannot hear, cannot walk with God. Romans, again, Romans chapter 1 speaks to this. Romans chapter 1, again, understanding the context, wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then tells us how. Romans chapter 1, verse 22, these people claiming to be wise, these idolaters claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God so the image they were supposed to represent, the immortal God, they exchanged that glory, that image, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what does God do? It says in verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. In other words, the wrath of God against all unrighteousness is say, you want to pursue this? You want to pursue these idols? Well, I won't let you become just like them. And so God gave them up. So when we see people living their sins now, yes, there is a final judgment that comes for everyone at their deaths. But the wrath of God is being poured out now against all unrighteousness. So what we see here in Revelation chapter 9, we see that these group of mankind here did not repent. They do not repent. It gives us our second answer to the question, is God right to judge mankind? The second answer is this. God is right to judge mankind because man refuses to repent and believe in God. Man's heart is hardened against God. And what this reminds us of, the implications of this truth, is that that means we are, and the only way to be truly alive as human beings is to be in a right relationship with God. Again, sin, to talk about sin, is an, sin is an autonomous act that tries to replace God with yourself. Try to say, there is no God, so I can live however I want. That's what sin wants to do. But to be truly, fully human, have a purpose, a true purpose in this life. So if you know right relationship with God, and the implication of this truth here is the pray part, in order to repent, it requires a miracle. It truly requires a miracle. And that miracle was done on the cross when Jesus Christ died for our sins. 
and rose again on the third day. And that miracle is this Holy Spirit touching a person's heart and saying, believe in him. That is the true work of God upon our hearts. Recognize that. Then looking here, I'll try to wrap this up a little bit, a little bit more quickly. Looking here then at the third doctrine. Third doctrine here we're going to see is God's providence. God's providence meaning more than just God's sovereignty, but God's providence because he acts in his sovereignty. And he has a purpose behind all things. And what we see here is that in God's judgment, there's a purpose behind it. To get a full picture of God's purpose, though, let's go back to Genesis chapter 19. Let's go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll try to wrap things up here and move into the conclusion. Genesis chapter 19, as I mentioned here, Abraham was, again, talking to God about his judgment. You know, if there, if there are 10 people, then God says, I will not destroy it. God sends two angels who are dressed like men to Lot, a, um, a relative of Abraham. And Lot lived in Sodom. And here is almost like a test to see how Sodom will react. And what we see here is that God is in control of all things. God is doing all this to show what's going on in man's heart and what's going on with his plan of salvation. Now, one of the first things we see here in God's providence is that God uses judgment to remind everyone that he is judge. God is in control of all nations, including the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah, including the nation that we live in now, including all nations around the world, all beings, earthly and spiritual, angels, humans, everyone answers to God. God here is wiser, greater than all of us. So God cannot be judged according to man's standard. God himself is the standard. But let's take a look here at what God reveals to us. What we'll see here, next point, is that God uses judgment to reveal man's heart. In Sodom, Lot reveals his righteousness. Right? Lot took the man, right? Chapter 19, Genesis 19, verse 2 says, My Lord's Please turn aside to your service house, spend the night, wash your feet so you may ride early and go on your way. So here we see hospitality. Lot demonstrates his righteousness, and so God looked to spare him and his family from destruction. But note what God does later. After the men attack Lot, the, these angels pull him back, save him, tell him, hey, judgment is coming, and tells Lot, go tell, go get your family. I'm going to save your family. Go tell your daughters, your wife, and your son-in-laws. But look here in verse 14. It says, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place where the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Because his son-in-laws revealed their hearts. They refused to listen to the warning of Lot. So our hearts remain unturned, unrepentful. And then God, and so Lot then runs off with his wife and his daughters. They run off, and behind them, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And here again, God revealing the hearts of man. We see Lot. We see Lot's wife. 
says in verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. In other words, she, as Sodom was being judged, condemned, destroyed, she looked back, reluctant to believe. She revealing a heart of reluctance, revealing a heart that desires to go back. She faced her own doom. And we see here, Lot continued forth, he continued running. I don't even know if he noticed his wife disappeared. Text doesn't say it, but Lot obviously didn't look back because he didn't become a pillar of salt. He went forth in faith. And so Lot believed, and his heart was revealed to God in the midst of his judgment. Lot believed and was saved, spared from the judgment against Saul and Gomorrah. And so God's judgment reveals the hearts of men, reveals our hearts. God uses judgment to bring his work of redemption. Again, remember that here, this all begins with a conversation between Abraham, who did not live in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham and God. And what does it say here in verse 20, uh, verse 27? It says, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before God, where he had his conversation with God, and he looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he saw the smoke. Now just think about what went through Abraham's mind. Abraham knew that God said if there were ten righteous, he would not destroy it. And so when Abraham got up in the morning and saw the smoke, he then knew it wasn't even ten righteous. It, it showed Abraham, God showed Abraham how wicked this world truly is. How wicked we truly are without God. And remember, Abraham is the one God made a covenant with. God's the one that said, I will, through your offspring, make a great nation, and all nations will be blessed through your offspring. Abraham then knew at this moment, God is to be feared above all else. And in order to save mankind, he had to remain, remain faithful to this God who is the judge of all the earth. How does this relate to Revelation? Well, in Revelation chapter 19, and as you guys know, my stance, I believe that during this time, the church has not been raptured yet. We mean the church here is looking upon all this. The church sees a third of mankind being killed. It doesn't say here whether a third of mankind were saved or unsaved. I, you could, from context, think they're mostly just the unrepentant unbelievers who are being killed here because of what happened with the fifth trumpet. It's not clear here, but I believe the church here sees all this. And the question then for us, even if we're not living during this time, the fact that it's revealed and written down for us and we know God's judgment is coming, how will we respond to judgment? How will we respond knowing God has made a covenant with us and God says, you will be my people. You will be the one to bless the nations. Bring the gospel to them. Make disciples of all nations. Knowing that judgment is coming for all people. How will you respond? 
We see here this judgment. God here uses judgment for his goodwill and purpose. That is the third answer to this question. God is right to judge because he uses judgment according to his goodwill and purpose. And part of his goodwill and purpose is to remind the church, to remind the church, to remind us that we have a task at hand. And it is an important task because people's lives are at stake. And this gives us perspective of what's going on in the world around us. Again, think about Ukraine, the fear they have with the Russian army waiting behind their border. Think about, think about China and the genocide of the Uyghur people there. And we cry more for them. We cry more for everyone who's dying. And we see this genocide, we wonder what's going on. Perhaps God is showing to us, reminding the church, hey, people are dying. People are dying without ever hearing the gospel. Will you act, church, my people? Will you bring them the gospel? See, this is a reminder for us and for the world that all people will one day have to come face to face with their creator. It's a reminder for us, the church, that we need to pray for the salvation of the world, pray for the salvation of all those around us, especially those who do not believe. I had this whole other thing, but we're running out of time, so I'm just going to skip past it. You guys can write it down if you guys want. I want to remind us that, yes, during this time of the Great Tribulation and Revelation, I believe is a future time, at this time, Judgment will come. Judgment will come. And yes, I believe during this time there are, there are still those coming to faith. There are still those who are going to be saved. But the reality is that many will continue to live in their depravity. And many will die. And in that time when one third of the world dies, remember when people face their death, their eternities are sealed. If they did not proclaim Christ, they did not believe in him, they are condemned to hell for eternity. But they do believe. We will rejoice in heaven and eternal life. In our physical deaths, our eternity are sealed. And so what does that mean for us? How does this apply to us today? It reminds us that to now, today, now is the time of repentance. Not just for you, but for everyone. Now is the time for repentance. Now is the time to go proclaim this. Now is the time to live in the fear of the Lord and to exhort one another to pursue Christ and pursue God above all else. This is what we're to do. And we are to take this message and just proclaim to the world because we want to see the world come to know Christ so that their eternal salvation are secured as well. So the big idea then is to respond today to God and repent of your sins before God's final and inescapable judgment comes upon the world. Respond today. Respond today, and this is a call, not just for you, but a call for you to bring to your unbelieving friends and family, a call for you to bring out to all those who don't believe. It's a reminder that people are dying, and death is real. And we have 
We have a Savior who has conquered death on the cross through his resurrection. He's conquered death. The only way to escape this judgment is through Christ. So let us first, in our own hearts, believe in Jesus, believe in his resurrection, recognize how good and how sweet that news is. And let's go out and proclaim this all the same to our campuses, to our homes, to our friends, to our social clubs, wherever we be, let's remember to proclaim this good news to the world. Let's pray. Father, I come to you now humbly, even for myself, to recognize just the need for the gospel in my life, in our lives, in the lives of people around us, I pray, Lord, that we will all come humbly before you, called in the way, called to wherever you may bring us, called to bring this good news of Christ to everyone around us, to the world. Let us continue to remember, just, just remember the blessings of your grace. Thank you, God, for saving us. So I pray, Lord, for all of us here, if any of us are wrestling with sin, wrestling with any kind of doubts, wrestling with these things, these truths, I pray, Father, that your spirit will move in our hearts. If it's sin, I pray that we would repent. If it's doubt, I pray that we will be affirmed and we will have confidence in you. And if any of us are just discouraged, I pray that, Lord, we will be encouraged because we are running this race together. And I pray, Lord, for those who are lost, anyone who do not believe, whether they're in this room, whether they're in our lives, I pray for all those who do not believe. I pray, God, that we will be a light to them. And that, Lord, our light will shine Christ into your hearts and your spirit will move through us and you will work a miracle, a miracle that makes a dead heart beat alive. We will see true repentance happen. So, Lord, I pray right now for your spirit to move and your spirit's work. Thank you, God, for your love and your grace. May we continue to worship you. Pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.